Hello and welcome everyone back to another episode of the Publisher Lab. I'm Tyler Bishop, joined alongside me as you've come to expect over lots and lots of podcasts, even though she took a little break for a while. Shelby King, welcome back. Thank you. Feels good to be back. Um, is this the second one we're recording this week? It is. Uh-huh. It is. We had a guest earlier this week. We're recording more and more podcasts, and um, I, I think we've talked and teased for a while that we might start doing them a little bit more frequently, and I think we're just on the cusp of that right now. So just stay tuned for some more exciting announcements about, if you like listening to the show at least, which if you're listening to it now and it's just barely tolerable, you're like, this is just barely on the list of things that I listen to podcast-wise, then it's probably not all that important. But if you're like, I could do one more of these a week, um, you're in luck because that's what we're trying, that's what we're aiming for. When you say that, all I think about is Anita Campbell from uh, Small Biz Trends because she was telling me that she'll just re-listen to some of the ones that she's already listened to just because she wants us to create more. So, Anita, you're in luck. Yeah. And at least we know that one person will be uh, fulfilled by our, um, I guess, initiative to create more podcasts. But in all reality, the podcast has grown a lot, and we want to thank all of our new listeners for joining us. And uh, so I guess without any further ado, Shelby, what is what is going on in the world of publishing right now? Yeah, um, there's actually a lot going on this week, especially since uh, we did our episode with our guests last week. So the first thing I wanted to start with was um, Google tweaks their algorithm to highlight original reporting in their search results. Um, so they've tweaked their algorithm to elevate original reporting um, and this product update is intended to elevate original reporting in search results and surface that original reporting for longer periods of time. Um, even as other publishers may churn out other posts, aggregating or building on that original content. So in addition to trying to elevate these um, individual web pages, the changes will also take a publisher's overall reputation for original reporting into account. So this means that readers interested in the latest news can find the story that started it all. Um, So I guess it's just kind of that groundbreaking story. And publishers can benefit from having their original reporting widely seen. So prior to this change, Google surfaced more recent and more comprehensive versions of news stories in search um, without really taking into account if the article was from the publication that originally broke the news. So Google's VP of News acknowledges that there's no absolute definition of original reporting and there's no universal standard for establishing how original (laughs) a given article is. But Google has used and will continue to use a number of factors to determine which website it surfaces in search results and they plan to continue to fine tune this update. So established news outlets kind of have a history of original reporting, that have a history of original reporting seem most likely to benefit. And these are kind of outlets like the New York Times, the Washington Post, Time, and ESPN. Um, But this update could pose a problem for national and local publications that rely on ad revenue they generate from the aggregated news posts. Um, And these ones are kind of designed to just appear at the top of the search results. So some of those outlets have been called um, content farms, which are designed to just capitalize on automated search engine results and churn out large quantities of low quality traffic. Um, so how do you feel about that? Um, I, I have like a lot of different thoughts on it in general. So uh, I think one area where it's 
I'll start with what, what I like about it. What I do like about it is that I do think that there is a certain amount of, and if you're listening to this and you're like, that's my business, um, I, it's, not that I, it's not that I'm saying your business is bad. It's that I think you have other value that you can add and other things that you can do, and I think it's probably a much more meaningful business to be a part of, and that is uh, legacy, like publications that rely largely on syndicating you know, um, if you're like a let's uh, NBC affiliate or something like that locally, and uh, you rely a lot on uh, syndicating national news, or uh, you're a local business journal that basically just republishes like all the press releases and stuff like that from along, uh, around the country. Um, those those businesses don't make as much sense from a user standpoint. So that news is not news that's your news um, and I think that one of the values that people get from localized news or specific news is is something that's unique or different and I do think that there's a value there for for users and um, the ecosystem needs to work to try to provide that um, I'm not sure and this is where I kind of pivot on this I'm not sure it's really to Google to decide um, uh, how people get their news or what's what's relevant I do understand the purpose of a search engine trying to be fair in that respect, trying to make sure that original content news providers are getting the credit that they deserve. I wonder a little bit about like they them saying they're going to take reputation into account. If someone's the originator of a story, whether they have a high reputation of it or not, I'm not sure that that really matters. Um, I think of a lot of places that start out as kind of content um, uh, aggregators, and then they because the business starts to work or they have something that works well for them, they start creating more original content. Um, I don't necessarily think that that should be penalized. Um, I can't think why it should be, but um, beyond just that, there's a really simple way of that Google can handle this that they've yet to, to explore. Any, any ideas on what you think that might be, Shelby? Um, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you explain that one. So which do you prefer? Do you, would you prefer... The, um, I guess the more the the originator, or would you prefer the most recent? Um, usually, I'd want the most recent, just because there might be some more information that's developed since the story is broken. Um, and also, I feel like sometimes um, they just have a different perspective too than the person who like broke the story or the publication that broke the story. So I sort of feel the same way, but let's pretend I feel the opposite. So what do we do about that? Uh, well, if you felt the opposite, then you would want to see the original story. Right. And I think, you know, this is an area where people start talking about AI and personalization. But the truth is, is like, just let people choose. It's a pretty simple thing. You know, like think about how many different things that you see on the web now where you have a choice and pretend you had a choice where... You search for something, and then at the top, there was just a drop-down where you could say, show me the what we believe is the originator of this news, or show me the most recent developments in this news. Pretty yeah. easy, right? I don't know that I want Google to decide that for me, take away my choice, or use machines to decide that for me either. So I'm a big fan of, I think Google could actually solve a lot of their issues that they have with algorithms and stuff like that by giving people choices. Um, but I suppose that presents a lot of the same problems in some ways, too. But 
I do think that they would get less criticism for this sort of thing, yeah. especially from news. There's also a lot of other factors that go into it, too, because what if the user prefers, you know, consuming their news through video and then the original um, publication only has, has no video. Exactly. Yeah. And I do think that this is not something that Google has a great track record with. Um, while they ha have done a good job in a lot of cases of uh, penalizing or uh, re removing content scrapers from the web, uh, I don't know that there's many publishers that are listening to this that haven't had someone take or steal uh, aspects of their content and republish it somehow. And whether those people are, you know, doing something financially gainful from it or not, um, as a publisher, you still look at that and you go, that's somebody taking taking my content. And um, there's times whenever Google has definitely not done a good job of, um, I guess, either penalizing those people or in, in many cases the originator you know, getting screwed in the whole deal. Uh, I do think that that's the minority of situations, but I, I think most publishers have experienced to some degree. Right. Um, so the next thing I wanted to talk about is um, an article from DigiDay. Um, so it's titled, Sports Publisher, Give Me Sport, Credits Improved Page Speed for Direct Traffic Jump of 63%. So, um, so before August, Give Me Sport struggled with their page load speed. Um, the five-year-old site had become cluttered with ads and heavy code, causing the user experience to suffer an individual page load to take up to 20 seconds. So to tackle this, the publisher scraped its former site and started fresh with the leaner progressive web app feature, um, with leaner progressive web app features like push notifications and the, the ability to work offline. Meanwhile, on the ad side, Give Me Sport um, also decreased its ad count from an average of 11 ads per page to four. So these changes have reduced its page load speed to within one to five seconds, depending on Wi-Fi or 4G. The, it also included 5G connections. I don't know if that's real. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody does. Yeah, so according to the publisher, improving its site speed had helped boost direct traffic by 63% year over year. Their product director said that they no longer have to rely on hacks in order to hit their viewability targets. He also said that since the launch of the more lightweight version um, and also removal of ads, users get far more engaged and spend more time viewing the content and ads. So... I don't uh, who, know. Who was the person that was quoted in the story? So that is their product director. Product director, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'd be really interested to talk to their ad ops team and their CRO uh, and figure out how, because what I didn't hear there was revenue or profitability. Yes, yeah. I also or And they also mentioned direct traffic, so I'd be really interested about organic traffic as well. It kind of just seems like a weird link. Like well, it, the thing that stood out to me immediately was that yeah, weird, a, a, a very weird link, but it's because uh, the thing that sticks out to me, and that's why I asked about the person's title, was the data seemed very cherry-picked. Like, why those metrics and why tie those things together? And it's that's that, that employee's KPIs, right? That's what their most important things were. So they've probably won some kind of, <laughs> I, I hate to say this, they've probably won some internal bureaucratic battle over what's the most important thing, and they're trying to find a way to justify you know, probably reducing revenue um, to justify, you know, like whatever they've done to increase that. They say total page load speed. They're just saying page load times. They just, yeah, it said page load time. Which is a really uh, arbitrary metric. So total page load time is not really all that important. And users don't really care. Um, I don't know how many users really care if the ads take one second to load or three seconds to load. 
um, as long as they can read the content. And that seems to be what's really important. Um, Google seems to really care about first paint and uh, time to interactive. And um, those things are the things that we sort of see correlated with organic traffic. But Lighthouse does a pretty good job of giving you those timings. Uh, total page load time is pretty it's kind of a vanity metric. Um, and direct traffic is the odd one. I know they said something about push notifications and things like that. Um, I guess the connection would be that because it's fast, people decide they come back again. But I, I'm, I don't know. I can't, can you think of any sites that you're like, I go to this one directly because it's fast? None. It does not compute for me. It's like the same thing I used to tell people about organic results, about people that obsessed over site speed, is that it really is not an, a, that important of a ranking factor. It's not... It's probably not in the top most 100 things that Google thinks is important to a searcher's query. So if you searched popsicles and Google just decided what is the most important things for us to consider when giving somebody a result when they search popsicles, how fast the page loads is not going to even touch the top 20. Because if the fastest page, a fastest page is a blank page. So if you search popsicles and I gave you a blank page, it's probably not very good. The next fastest one is a small story about World War II uh, on an AMP page. That's probably not very good either. So there's probably a lot of other things to consider before we get to speed. Um, it's more when it detracts, I think, from user experience. So the right to look at engagement time. Viewability isn't a bad thing either, especially if advertisers are asking for it. Uh, viewability isn't necessarily tied to uh, revenue. So if you're a publisher and you optimize around viewability, your ad rates programmatically won't necessarily go up. But if you are selling direct campaigns, sometimes advertisers will say, we want 100% viewability, otherwise we're not paying for those impressions and things along those lines. It's funny that you mentioned um, like speed as a ranking signal and also time to interact, because I know in the article it mentioned that one of the reasons they decided to speed up their site is because they say that you know, um, speed is a, a big ranking factor. And I didn't want to mention it because um, I don't like to spread misinformation. Or It's, it's probably one of the biggest, um, I think, um, fallacies that's, that's out there in the world of SEO right now. And I, I understand why it exists. It's because um, it's quantifiable. So, I mean, we're all sort of guilty of it. If somebody was like, my site, I need help with the SEO of my site. And immediately one of the things that comes to mind is like, well, could we make your site faster? Because that's something objective. Like if I make your site faster, we can measure that. We can actually see if it's fast or not. Unfortunately, most people use the wrong things to measure it and look at the wrong stuff. Again, that's a nuanced subject in and of itself. But um, beyond that, uh, we've continually seen that most sites, like it sounds bad because Google says the opposite, but Google has their own agenda. It's funny that people will listen to Google about this, but only this. Uh, it's that most sites are fast enough. Like, they just are. Most people are, most sites are fast enough for the users that are accessing them. Go look at the connection speed of the vast majority of your visitors. Look at their average uh, page view duration and then compare it against slow connection times. If you're seeing a dramatic difference or a higher bounce rate, then you might have an issue. But if it's all the same, then the user experience isn't being affected. And that's what Google says that they're looking at. And Truthfully, your site having an SSL is a more important factor. That is something measurable. When sites increase their site speed from, you know, like what would they consider a low score in PageSpeed Insights to a fast one, makes almost no difference from what we've seen. And when sites add an SSL, we almost always see incremental improvements. So add an SSL before you 
tweak your site speed. I hate to tell you. <laughs> All right. The last thing I have on deck today was um, an article that you shared in our Five Bullet Friday newsletter. Um, so it's about how Google's nofollow sponsored and UGC links impact SEO. Um, so after 14 years after its introduction, Google announced significant changes to how they treat the nofollow links or link attribute. Um, so I like this article because it was really comprehensive about... Is it the one that was written in the Moz blog by yeah. Cyrus? Yeah, mm -hmm. it's really great. Spelled out which link attribute you should use in what context. But I also really like that it had pretty much a summary of the entire article yeah. in bullet points. Cyrus Shepard is a, one of the few people that I'll point to and say, yeah, when he produces content on SEO, it's usually worth reading or paying attention to. Yeah, so I have the bullet points here that they kind of summarize, but did you want to give us a run-through of, of the article? So what I can tell you right now is that I, I have a cursory knowledge of what Google has done here. I've read their stuff. I've skimmed Cyrus's article there. I've actually kind of bookmarked it to kind of get into it a little bit later. Um, but I've also seen the um, like enormous amount of Twitter feedback that John Mueller and Gary Ills have shared uh, just from publishers asking, or not just publishers, webmasters, asking questions about it. And their, the Google stance is they gave out all this info on it, and Google drives me crazy with this because the speed thing's another great example. It's like they mention one small thing, and look at, how, look at all the crazy things webmasters are doing to like make small adjustments. Do you know how many people are going to change their links with all kinds of theories around this? And you know what? Uh, you know what their webmaster team is telling everybody on Twitter? Let's do it or don't do it. It doesn't matter. It's going to make no difference. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> They're like, it's just a classification. It's meant for us to help you have options in terms of telling us what different types of links are. And it's like, well, why? If it doesn't matter, then why? Like, why would we do this? Yeah. If I'm a publisher, why would I need to tell... Why would I need to put any kind of classification that my that a link is a spot from a sponsor or, you know, like a, an affiliate or something like that? Like that's not for my users. Like my users, I can put a disclaimer on my page. That's for a crawler. Mm -hmm. So if Google says this is what you should do and this is these are your options, and then they say, well, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. You can do it or not do it. We'll figure it out anyway. That's their point is they're saying, well, we'll figure it out anyway. And we're not even going to necessarily pay attention to it. They said the exact quote is, we will take, if you, if you put a link and you mark it as like UGC or sponsor or whatever, uh, we will take that as a hint as to what that link is. Mm -hmm. Great. Thanks. Thanks for taking my hint. Because you know how much work it is to go through a site and to change all the links out, especially if you've got a really deep, content, contentful site. This, this thing really kind of irked me in a way. It's, it's one of those things that I would really appreciate if Google's like, hey, the links are important. We all know that and we're willing to acknowledge it. And these are some tools that you can have to give us a better idea of what different links are so that we don't make mistakes in the way that we crawl or follow the links on your website because we are going to use them to assess authoritativeness, et cetera. That's what they should say. Because if that's how they intend to use it, which is what I believe, then or are using it today, then it is what I believe they should tell people. Instead, saying we'll figure out it anyways, we'll take it as a hint, um, I think makes people basically say, "Is it worth it? Is it not worth it?" On the fence of whether or not they should invest lots of time in doing it. 
Um, my advice to publishers is that it's not something that they're doing or rolling out right now as a part of something, but they've kind of alluded to the fact that this might be something they start using more in the future. So I would just say start doing it now. If nothing else, moving forward, just use those classifications appropriately. And don't try to manipulate it. I think that probably one of the things that if there's if there's anything to take away from it, it's maybe that they won't it maybe isn't a benefit, but if you do it wrong, it's it's probably not. It's probably a penalty of some kind. Right. Well, you pretty much summarized the entire article. You hit almost every single Oh really? Yeah, bullet. You saved it. me a lot of talking, which I appreciate. Um that's actually all I have for this week. I know I said that there's a lot going on, but um, I want to save some stuff because we have John Cole and actually another person, Paul, we've had on the podcast before coming into the office next week. It'd so. be fun to have them both on at the same time. Uh, that could that will have to be a two-parter because um, both of those gentlemen like to talk a lot. <laughs> that's that's very true. We need to give John a little time to get over jet lag. He's he's kind of a baby about those sort of things. So sorry, John. You know you are. <laughs> Yeah, so um, you'll be hearing some more familiar voices and unfamiliar accents on the podcast. Um, but yeah, that's all I have for this week. Yeah, that's that's all I have as well. Uh, we want to thank everyone for joining us today on the podcast. Actually, there's one other thing that I wanted to, to touch on, and we're not set up for it. So I'm actually going to roll out of the way here, and I'm going to let our producer, Alan, jump in, because there was one other thing I wanted to touch on, and that is uh, content marketing world uh, actually just occurred over... The past couple of weeks and Alan was actually in attendance and um, so <laughs> you rarely hear from Alan on the show but he's always here he's chimed in from time to time but um, we've had Alan on the show before and, and Alan just got back from Cleveland and I know a lot of publishers uh, attend Content Marketing World but it, it really is a it's kind of more of a marketer conference but it's kind of seen as a, a point where a lot of the kind of trends in online marketing and, and SEO and things like that pop up. So, uh, Alan, I wanted to give you a chance to maybe kind of tell our audience about any any trends or just about the event in general, about anything that they should maybe kind of be on the cutting edge of. Yeah, for sure. Um, it was – I really enjoyed attending, and I would say – I know I talked to you about this, Tyler, but when I came back, um, I did – overall, I thought – this conference is really geared towards people who maybe are in a marketing position or maybe they've been hired as like the head of marketing at a startup and they have that gumption, but they maybe don't have a, a really hard background in marketing. And so I think it's a really good conference for people who really want to add to that foundational uh, level of knowledge. But like my degree like was in advertising and marketing. So going there, I would say... A lot of it was that foundational knowledge, but I did, you know, I was able to pull out some kind of key trends to, I'd say, keep in the loop with, and then just that are probably going to, you're going to see more of it in, in the coming years. So the first one was voice search. Um, there was a speaker who her presentation was probably the one that stuck out with me the most just because she actually brought like hard data of what her and her team uh, did in order to optimize their textual content for voice search, like featured snippets on Google. And I think that was the main takeaway from that talk, that talk was the fact that people are throwing around voice search as a kind of buzzword 
or it's a it's a hyped you know new thing. You, it's you either going to be the greatest thing ever, the greatest or thing it's at, like yeah. going to be absolutely nothing. Yeah, it's like you know, it's one of those things where marketers look at this as like, oh, it's a train that I have to jump on, and if it leaves the station without me, I'm going to be left behind. When in actuality, that's not really the case. And I think the the best point that I got from that that talk was the fact that if you do not have your textual content in order in terms of like writing content for both. Um, you know, for the user benefit of who's searching for a query and also for Google's crawlers. And this is um, kind of in line with what we do here at Azoic, especially on our blog. Uh, like our content writing guide is a good place that goes in line with this word of advice that if you even want to hope of being that position zero, which is that first spot after all the ads, which is the voice snippet that Google will read you if you use, you know, OK Google or voice search, if you even want to attempt to get that position zero, you have to have all your textual content um, written to where it's going to answer the user's query uh, most efficiently. That's cool because I think that was something that was theorized for a long time. And I've seen so many people talk about voice search in every version of the presentation. I, I, I know we talked about it. There was a bunch there at the conference kind of hyping it. But that one in particular you liked because they brought some actual data that they, they had achieved this. So that's cool. Yeah, absolutely. And then um, the second was webinar programming. And, you know, the vo voice search was my favorite of all that I went to. But so I'll just hit these really quickly. But, you know, webinars are evolving. And, you know, I think we all have the the memory of if we've been in, a, in companies where or we signed up for webinars where you, you go to the webinar and it's literally just some old white guy reading off like a product manager or something reading off a slide deck who clearly doesn't really want to be there, but has been forced to do a webinar because probably someone in the C-suite is like, we have to do a webinar. So it's good that these things are evolving. Um, and, you know, they're evolving into serialized programs, you know, something that can enhance brand experience. They can be interactive. Um, they can be embedded with kind of multi-touch content where social media is embedded in these um, webinar windows when you're watching them. And there's a few good examples. If you all, the listeners, want to check these out, uh, LinkedIn does a Live with Marketers series where literally once a month they bring some marketers together and it's just a conversation and uh, it's serialized. You know, it's once per month. Uh, Charles Schwab does coffee talks. It's You know, they talk about IRAs, personal finance. It's very uh, casual and it takes away the whole you're just staring at a slide deck for 60 minutes. And then AutoTrader also does a... Serialized webinar that has social media integrated into it, a dedicated host, and also a live Q&A. So those are things that if your brand does do webinars, you can think about incorporating some of those elements or just research um, what brands are doing these well and perhaps align your style to fit those. Another thing was artificial intelligence. Uh, this is something, this is a big um, and again, another hype buzzword that's thrown around. I did see the other day that uh, Gartner had listed marketing uh, AI as reaching that uh, point of inflated expectations, like that that point wherever everybody thinks it's going to solve all the world's marketing problems and things like that. Yeah, and that was one of the things that I found interesting. My favorite quote from the whole presentation was that uh, the Financial Times did a study and found out that 35% of AI, quote-unquote, companies had no AI in their products. I, I believe that, and I think that there's probably a good bet that those that they found actually did probably don't really. They probably have algorithms, not real AI. Yeah, exactly. And so, 
you know, there's different layers of machine learning. Um, and then I think the biggest takeaway from that topic uh, in the conference is that as a content marketer or a content creator, if you know how to use artificial intelligence, there's a lot of tools out there like Watson Studio, GPP-2 from OpenAI. There's even things like Feedly and Pocket, which are good news scraping tools. And there's also podcasts on a lot of stuff where you can use AI for marketing. And then the biggest takeaway is just that you know, if you have large data sets or stuff that you want to visualize or cluster, you can use uh, these artificial intelligence-powered tools in order to make your job as a content creator easier. If you're thinking to yourself, oh, well, I have uh, 2,000 articles written over the past eight years. I want to see which um, keywords are the most valuable. You can find ways to, to get the data to yield those answers to you. And I mean, I know our kind of company provides software like that for uh, publishers where you can look at your categories, you can look at um, your content kind of holistically and see what is my most valuable content. And that's kind of the what he was touching on in, yeah, in and that I, talk. I think that that is where for publishers there's an opportunity. I, I know that, that Ezoic's big data analytics, that's one of the things you can do now is you can connect search console data to it. And it'll match that up with revenue and, and how rankings and things like that change over time to give you an idea really like how content is trending in terms of lifetime value and things like that, which is pretty cool if you're a data nerd. Um, but yeah, I think uh, AI actually has a lot of really cool applications in content marketing and for publishers. Um, but yeah, I think that there's a lot of hype. And then I think people are kind of over the the buzzword AI. You said they were doing a or they were doing buzzword bingo at uh, content yeah. marketing world, and yeah, I mean marketers love buzzwords. So I got a bingo card, and I think just at looking at it, I had placed half of the available stickers on the spots with how many buzzwords I had heard. Yeah, well, we've certainly talked about a lot of them on this show here before, and hopefully, we can help everyone continue to sort through the noise. Thanks, Alan, for giving us kind of some, sure. yeah. some rundown of content marketing world, and uh, that that. That cuts the, the episode of the Publisher Lab uh, today, and I want to thank everyone for joining us once again. And uh, hopefully uh, you've enjoyed some of this material, and as Shelby had mentioned before, uh, we've got some more guests heading your way in the coming weeks, and then hopefully some additional podcasts coming your way as well. Uh, we want to thank you for joining us this week on the Publisher Lab. <laughs>